1: Welcome, everyone. This is Jessica Zhu. I am an assistant professor of religion at University of Southern California at Dornsife, and a New Books Network host in Buddhist studies. Today, we are very lucky to have Professor Wendy Adamack from University of Calgary to talk with us about her new book, Practice Scapes and the Buddhist of Baoshan published by University of Hamburg Price in 2021. So welcome, Vindi. Thank you so much for writing this amazing book. It's massive. 609 pages. It's full of insights and surprises. While reading, I cannot count the times that I say to myself, oh no, I've never thought of my text image in this way. But now that Vindi pointed it out, it makes sense. So I'm going to use the same idea to explain another text that I'm working on. So I hope the listeners uh, will find similar moments in our interview, and maybe this will encourage more people to pick up this massive book and start reading it. Um, Before we start our traditional um, interview questions, I just want to prime the readers that this book is open access. And in the blog post of this episode, you can find a link to download the whole PDF. And honestly, for listeners, You don't have to read the whole book from beginning to end. (laughs) Each chapter can be read on its own. It's like a mini book Mm. within a book. It has a kind of a fractal structure. Reading part Mm. of it, you still get a sense of how the whole book looks like. So for example, me thank as you. a Yuga chari, of course, yeah, I started with chapter five, the battlefield en- mm. reenactment about whether Yugachari's is idealism, phenomenology or something else. I thoroughly enjoyed it, which got me curious mm. enough to read the whole thing. So thank you for seducing me into this whole practice-scape of the book. Thank so Wendy, well, thank I- you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah so Wendy I'd like to start our interview with the uh, uh, traditional New Books Network question could you please tell us a bit more about yourself how you came to research on this site baoshan the Sheng cave the lanfengshan and then central figures like Ling Yu and Ling disciple Hui Xiu, and all the people's ideas flow into and out of this place, and the whole debate about Yogachara and underpinning your novel method of studying this practice scape, which um, is also means Dao Chang, or Bodhimanda.
2: Well, first of all, thank you, Jessica, so much for, for reading the book. I mean, I Frankly, I've been living kind of in this world for the last twenty years, and I was that was enough for me. And I, I wasn't sure anybody would would actually read it. But you, you know, your questions are so sensitive and so complex, and you really hit um, major points for me about the book. So thank you so much. Uh, as you said, it's not a light undertaking. <laughs> um, so I first read about Baoshan around 1998 when I was browsing the stacks at the University of Iowa, which was my first teaching job. And I read Ochi Fumio's um, work on Baoshan, uh, the, the translated title is Research on the Stupa Inscriptions in the Baoshan Lingchuan Temple Caves, and this was in Tohogakuho. And because of that article, uh, seeing seeing that there were mortuary niches, that's what caught my attention. Um, during a research trip in China in 1999, I made a detour to visit Baoshan for the first time, and I was hooked. I went back in 2001 and then again in 2005, both times I was living in Beijing. Um, to take systematic photographs and check all the inscriptions against a digitized transcription taken from Baoshan Si, a survey that was made in 1991. The survey had good drawings, but lots of gaps in its transcriptions. With the help of Beijing scholars Shen Ruyuan and Wang Jing and my colleague Frederick Smith, I was able to gather a more complete record and then began working on it. The more I got into the images and transcriptions, the further they led me into that world, that practice scrape. And You're right, it, it became fractal-like. Things came out from within the structure. And um, particularly the one you, the chapter you mentioned, the Dilin Stages Treatise and the Yogacara chapter was the last one to get written and probably the most complex to arrange. So that was a challenging place to start. Uh, for you, um, and I appreciate it. <laughs> it felt important <laughs> to go into more detail about how Dilun is different from Vasubandhu's Yogacara and also from the modern debates concerning Yogacara.
1: Thank you so much. So, um, that leads us to the segue question. Before we go into each chapter, could you please explain in layman's terms for our listeners, what is this, this Yogacara word, really, especially the Dilun branch of it, that underpinned this escape at Baoshan in medieval China.
2: Yes, um, what I loved about Ling- linking the Baoshan founder Lingyu, who's a Dilan exegete, and Wei Yuan's writings, Wei Yuan, a Jingning Wei you know, one of the most famous Dilan mm-hmm. scholars, and they they overlapped in time in the seventh century, sixth and seventh century, and um, What I linked with Baoshan is that Yogacara, a tradition that has been handled as quintessentially scholastic and philosophical, came alive as a basis for practice. I found support for this sense of Dilan practice in the writings of the eminent contemporary Chinese philosopher Lin Zhengguo in Taiwan. And uh, Bruce Williams' dissertation and article on Teylan also highlighted their unique approaches to practice. For me, two quotes used in the book that I used in the book link the ritual practice of Buddha nama, naming, calling on the Buddhas, and repentance ritual with Tatagita Garba, um, which re- most readers will be familiar with, but it's the, the womb or matrix of the, the Buddha and comes to be associated with the famous doctor, um, idea of Buddha nature. So the d links is a combination of Tathagatagarbha and Yogacara texts and commentaries. Um, they translated many of them. And these two quotes by Ling Yu, the founder, and Hui Yuan, the famous d exegete, um, relate to contemporary scholar Dan Lusthouse's claim about Xuanzang, 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 the famous pilgrim to India who brought back Yogacara texts, um, Chengwei Shilun. So Dan Lusthouse in his book Buddhist Phenomenology says Yogacara is not about the what not about what the mind is, it is about what it does. And for me, these earlier uh, works and statements by Ling Yu and Hui Yuan illustrate that idea. So I hope uh, it's okay if I read out these quotes because I think they're very telling. Um, yes, please. So Ling Yi, it, Ling, okay, thank you. Um, Ling Yu has this poem is uh, preserved, um, and pro- there's no reason to doubt that he actually did write this, um, unless someone tells me otherwise, but it's in the Fayuan Chulin. And he is talking about how the hell how hell is uh, created by the mind, which is a topic both in Vasubandha's uh Vimshika and also in um, uh that's that, that your background noise there was appropriate for hell the sirens um and and is also a topic um that comes up in one of the baoshan uh inscriptions the Mahamaya Sutra so Lingyu is talking about hell how, how it's created by the mind and by actions intentional action and cognition and but he's, you know, once hell has been generated, he says, at that time, even all the Buddhas will be utterly unable to save me, unless I myself confess the blameworthy acts I have done. By responding to the mind of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and following one's originally pure nature, beginningless ignorance from then on gradually weakens. Therefore, I take my shame to heart, and with profound mind, I repent all transgressions. I beseech the Buddhas to spread the radiance of their compassion and shine it on suffering beings. Make the kleshas accumulated all entirely disappear. One's own nature, pure mind, from this reaches actuality, undifferentiated absolute dharmadhatu and attains perfection now. So um and end of quote. Certainly this is Chinese version Tathagata Garba understanding of one's own nature is Buddha nature. But the first part, or potentially <laughs> Buddha nature, but the first part of the poem also echoes this um very you know foundational Yogacara recognition that afflictive States of mind seem real, and the understanding of uh, the, the analysis of how the effects of actions transform the mind. Therefore, one's reality, one's apparent reality. And this is also the theme of the quote from Hui Yuan, our other representative of Dilin here. He says in his Da Shang it is because of transformation that the differentiations are inconsistent. If there is a land of a certain nature, there follows body of a certain nature. For example, before Amitabha became a Buddha, his land was coarse and uncouth. But after he became a Buddha, his realm was magnificent and pure. The locations that other Buddhas manifest are indeterminate in their conditions. It is all like this. If there is a body of a certain nature, there follows a land of a certain nature. In other words, for me, conditions neither exist in the mind nor as fixed forms. While the practice schema may vary, these examples illustrate the underlying Materiological, salvational, liberative, uncertainty principle. And that is what I I pursued through various fields of practice in this book. The idea that cognitive affective modes and the appearance of conditions are co-constituting. Wow, that is profound.
1: Um, What I can gather is that mind we don't. Uh, Yogacharins don't worry too much about what mind is, but what mind does. What mind does is hugely consequential in terms of liberation, because the mind creates the um, the world that appear to us. And exactly, you know, yeah, yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, I just want to prime the readers. Our last question is going to be asking you um, what you are currently working on. But for now, let's focus on your current book. Uh, I know okay, the parallels, okay. but yeah, um, I, I can de- de- definitely feel how people could read it in a certain way, in the New Age kind of spirituality thing. But mm-hmm. um, maybe if we explain to the listeners what actually the Baoshan people in the 6th, 7th century uh, were doing. Mm-hmm. They'll get a sense, come to conclusion themselves. So your book contains two parts. Part one is have um, has seven chapters, and part two contains like hundreds of photos of the stupas and niches at Baoshan, and uh, with the Chinese transcribe transcriptions of the inscriptions there and the translations. So for now, let's focus on part one. Chapter one on practice scape at Baoshan, interviews a wide range of past scholarship and methodology to mark out your own take on how to understand Baoshan, the practice scape on its own terms. So now we all know kind of uh, objective scholarship is itself a social construct, is serving certain interests of groups of people while discounting others. We also know that ontology and metaphysics, idealism, materialism, and you know, kind of overrated. Instead, increasingly, scholars are turning their analytic focus to processes, relations. But that said, I still think your methods mark a new beginning in Buddhist studies. I'd like to hear your take on why you invoke the metaphor of ant, A-N-T was a spider and choose the perspective mm-hmm. of the spider as the shorthand for your approaches of studying sites
2: and their relations at Baoshan. Thank Please. you. Uh, be- so before I go into uh, spider and spider and ant, let me point to an elephant in the room, uh, which is perhaps Samantha Badras. Um current current variations on process philosophy, relationality, uncertainty, re- reflexivity. What are you know these various um, really Interesting developments that I admire um, and am working on, working with, are, for example, works by Isabel Stengers, Karen Barad, Donna Haraway, Jane Bennett, Michelle Bitball, and of course, Francesco Varela. However, um, the versions I was working from in practice scapes were primarily Michelle Sayar, Bruno Latour, and Timothy Ingold. What these address and bring into the co-constitutional or co-poietic approach, co-making approach to understanding and experience is their detailed analyses of cultural, social, and structural effects. And I suggest that this is a kind of sixth skanda that was traditionally bracketed simply as conditions in most Buddhist discourse. On the other hand, no matter how far they may go in deconstructing the so-called mind-body problem, or the interdependent nature of what we experience, our conditions, and what the mind does, there is still a boundary, a taboo. Animals, images, objects, cyborgs, no problem. The agency of relations includes them. Buddhas and bodhisattvas? Whoa. Pure fantasy in these, you <laughs> yes. know, in these other treatments. Um, other types of form than those which can be separated from noise and made into repeatable signal, and this is taken from Michelle Serre, are understandably difficult to handle. Those are the brackets of our age that I lu- allude to at the end of the book. Um in my current book, and I'm sorry, I keep going back to that, Michelle Serres, as always, is my guide at the further reaches of communication. So I'm trying to, you know, look at Samantha Batra's elephant and see if we can accommodate it in this room. But for now, back to Spider and Ant. Um, this is how Timothy Engel playfully challenges Bruno Latour, and by the way, May he rest in jubilee. May he rest in in joy, because uh, he passed away at the beginning of, uh, Latour passed away at the beginning of October. So um, Bruno, yeah, he's really Mm. done a lot for us. Um, And he proposes in Reassembly the Social that we recognize the ways that our classifications and objectifications are bird's eye projections and constructions far from actual processes and perspectives. The latter are actually more like an ant's than a bird's. For example, in his early work, Latour studied science lab culture and commented on the important role of coffee and individual approaches to it. In response to actor network theory and which Latour helped pioneer, anthropologist Timothy Engold staged a playful dialogue between ant and spider, which stands for skilled practice. And we might think of skillful means here. Upaya involves, I, developmentally, D, embodied, E, responsiveness, R, spider. Let me run that by you again. Skilled <laughs> practice involves developmentally embodied responsiveness. So Ant is confident that the inclusiveness of his new theory, not separating the social world of Antur from the material world of nature, makes his network comparable to the spider's web. Spider protests in Timothy's ventriloquism that they are not the same, she argues The lines of my web are not at all like those of your network. In your world, there are just bits and pieces of diverse kinds that are brought together or assembled so as to make things happen. Every relation in the network, then, is a connection between one thing and another. As such, the relation has no material presence. For the materiality of the world, in your view, is fully comprehended in the things connected the lines of my web, to the contrary, are themselves spun from mixed materials exuded from my own body and are laid down as I move about. You could even say that they are an extension of my very being as it trails into the environment. They comprise, if you will, my wide wear. They are the lines along which I live and conduct my perception and action in the world. So that's uh t- Timothy and Gold in being alive. Uh in a spider-like manner, my study of um Baoshan sought the lines along which the inhabitants of Baoshan lived, but this could not be abstracted from how I myself conduct, in, in Gold's words, conduct my perception and action in the world. The implied spiders in Baoshan's web of texts and images are lay and ordained practitioners who took vows of various kinds and worked on skilled practice involving developmentally embodied responsiveness. However, I acknowledge that my following of Baoshan practitioner's lines are also my own spidey senses reacting to vibrations generated from my own situatedness in my own web. <laughs> it is not my web, but I am part of its making. It is not their web, but their actions are part of its making. So it is indeterminate until uh, sensed. Wow. Thank you so much,
1: Vindi, for... um elaborating much deeper insights that I don't think I get in my first read of your book. But what I, um, I just want to prime the listeners, there's three things um, I really find um, very, very thought provoking that conditions is the sixth skanda that in our current age, we bracket out bodhisattva the agencies of Bodhisattvas and Buddhas, we can talk about agencies of objects, images, but like Bodhisattvas, oh, that's a different story. And the most important part, I think, for me, the takeaway about spider and ant is actually relations themselves and not just like the secondary existence connecting one thing to another. They have their own primary presence material presence mm-hmm. so we need to pay attention to them put at least them on equal footing with things that we pay a, you know just like focus on so much of our attention more um, analysis of text and image all right, so that's chapter one. Um, there's so much more in that chapter that readers could, um, just like listeners and readers, uh, readers could take away from it. But uh, let's move on for now to chapter two, Dimensions of End Time and Shen Cave. So here you analyze three texts central to the making, of the practice scape at Baoshan, they all tie to two phases of end time. On one phase, right, is the impending disappearance of the Buddhist teaching, and the other uh, transmutation of body bound time to a transpersonal Buddhahood. That's on the kind of intellectual aspect of the end time, the psychological, textual kind of first complex there. But on the other hand, the second phase is also about the practice scape itself, right? The material presence that developed into both a sustainable community and a profitable bodhimanda or Dao but at the same time it's also a place created mm-hmm. for the purpose of leaving itself behind. So I'm mm-hmm. very moved when reading the passage on page seventy nine, where you write here I just quote standing in the doorway of Dajusheng cave, poised on a ledge between the Buddhist and necropolis. One is placed in the middle of a relationship between the Dharma as something preserved in secret texts and extraordinary men, and the Dharma as something expanded in ordinary bodies of all kinds. The practice scape is carried by the flow of anyone who, as Daoxuan says, comes to the cave to read, weep, renew vows, and to be moved. Da Sheng captures both the cosmic cycle of the advent of another Buddha in another age, and the Buddha in each practicing body. Unquote. So, Wendy, could you please tell us, uh, tell our listeners a bit more about how these three texts function in maintaining this um, Baoshan community, the flow of people's materials, texts, ideas, and emotions? Well,
2: hmm. oh, thank you. Um, and here is where I, I feel a bit ant-like. I find it difficult to present a bird's eye view of these dimensional texts. So here, I'm just—I'm going to name them and say a bit about them. But discussion of their significance in the book is embedded in many contexts, not just in the end time chapter. I keep going back to them into in different chapters. Um, most significantly, of course, passages from them are carved inside and outside Da Cave, the main devotional cave. Um, <laughs> and I refer uh, interested readers to pages 60 to 78 in, for a translation and explanation of the inscriptions. But the three texts are uh, the Yue Zong, Yue Zong Feng Fengqing and the Chandagarbha Sutra. Sutra of the Bodhisattva Moon Embryo, uh, the Mohomoya Jing, the Mahamaya Sutra, Sutra of the Buddha's Mother Mahamaya. And the Chan Hui Wen, uh, the long title, is translates as the abridged Seven Roster Buddha Nama and Confession Repentance Text. So Buddha Nama is calling on the names of the Buddhas, and Daju Jushanke was an aid to that practice because the Buddhas of Confession are have images inside next to the main Buddha images. Uh, and the names of the Buddhas one calls on are scripted outside the cave. So uh, a main motif for Baoshan is um, this end-time eschatology, the final age, um, the idea that the efficacy of the Dharma of Shakyamuni, the Buddha of the current age, is coming to an end. And this is expressed in the Chandragarbha Sutra, carved inside. But also, this at the same time at Baoshan, they emphasize the Buddha is not gone, which is taught in the Lotus and the Nirvana Sutras, which also have representative passages at Baoshan. Um, most importantly, as Ling Yu's poem asserts, the Buddhas are ever accessible to the person who opens their past actions to the gaze of the Buddhas. This is conveyed very very eloquently by the Buddha's mother in the Mahamaya Sutra passage carved inside. And a script for doing this, for this performative um, uh, act is scripted in the Chan Wei Wen carved on the outside. Uh, In various sections of practice scapes, I discuss intersections with the interesting Sanjie, or three levels, movement, which died out quickly, and the Pure Land, or Jingtu movement, their soteriologies, which uh, are still going very strongly to this day. Both of them left traces of Baoshan. And um, if I could quote from the passage prior to the just prior to the one you just, you read, thank you for doing that. Um, I want to emphasize that the tone of the collected inscriptions in context is not a fear of the end or a kind of craven repentance. Rather, it is conviction of access, resonance, and reception that shines as brightly as Vairochana, the main image in Dajujang cave. When you are inside and in front of the cave, it is very easy to imagine the community gathering there to make offerings to the Buddhas and recite the Chan Hui and call on all of the Buddhas assembled there. So in the book, if, excuse me, um, I said, How did these traces, these images of decline, move people to pure conduct? The motive power of this small pocket of Buddhist eschatology was neither fear of judgment from on high, nor subversive hope for a new world order. Its end time time timetables, images of serial transmission of the Dharma, and of Buddhas point not to teleology, but to imminence. It is actualization of the link between time and no time that the practitioner is urged to access. Evocation of Buddha names throughout space and time link each practitioner to the adamantine power of quote knowledge of the natures of things. Wow.
0: This episode is brought to you by Saks.com. you certainly highlight things
1: that escaped my attention on my first reading but now that i think about it the sociological uncertainty right is the end time Mm -hmm. or not end time right and also like Mm -hmm. the idea that the word is co-made right we are Mm co-making so um Mm -hmm. that's give us the uncertainty these at least further development that's possible future possibilities are in there uh-huh. through our actions that's accessible still to us um, yes yeah so we are really limited by time i want to move on there's so many things to talk about in chapter two as well but for now let's move on to chapter three repentance practice okay. that's um where you lead readers deep into the rationale and psychology of repentance rituals. Um, and also echoes the things you just want mentioned about the purpose and the hope, encoded in the repentance there. So here you argue that the repentance developed at Sheng cave on Baoshan and its in- inheritors. Sanjiejiao, you mentioned the cult of the three stages, but also maybe pure land, they have a lure, right? Um, you said here, I just quote, um, recognizing the evil of one's nature was not a soteriology of self-hatred. It was a soteriology of the possibility of ultimate apotheosis through acceptance of difficult truths. And I lied a little bit in between, but the other thing is that, here's a quote again, the repentant practitioners here and now are heroes and heroines who see the Dhammakaya. So Dhammakaya is the word for Dhamma body. So needed to say, whoever sees the Dhamma body are liberated, um, get the true Dhamma. So you also suggest that despite the modern impression of modern chan and anti-ritual. In reality, the appeal of repentance ritual here, I just quote, helped um, create the streamlined and concentrated contemplative rituals of the so-called formless practice that developed later in the 8th century Chan. So could you please reiterate for the listeners the through line of your argument, the appeal of the repentance rituals uh, and the connection between repentance and the rise of so-called anti-ritual Chan? Thank
2: you. Thank you. Um, yes, well, so I I was sort of you know working backwards uh, in time when I when I turned to Baoshan because my first book was a f- focus on a community in Sichuan in the late eighth century, one of the early uh, Chan communities, the Bao Tang. Um, so, and I was working from. My training with my mentor Bernard Four. And Bernard Four referred to Chan as ritual anti ritualism. And a number of scholars have since worked on various facets of Chan or Zen uh, performative ritual. What I wanted to draw out in practice scapes was the performative similarity I saw between repentance ritual at Baoshan. And the so called formless repentance and precepts in the 8th century Platform Sutra, and its lesser known cousin, the Lidai Fabaji, the record of the Dharma Jewel through the generations, which was what I studied and um, the basis of my book, The Mystique of Transmission. Um, so both are Tathagatagarbha derived soteriologies um, focusing on Buddha nature. That the you know a sort of Chinese Tathagatagarbha, and they urge the devotee towards a moment of actualization of Buddha nature. In the Dilun case, this was to be triggered by repentance and the perlocutionary prayer that the Buddhas recollect me inian wo. And from this, in Ling Yu's words, quote, one's own nature, pure mind from this reaches actuality. Um, and so to sum up, um, I'm taking this from, from practice scapes, I argue that what I called the pivotal reflexive resonance between refuge and realization, um, which is this calling on the Buddhas for, for refuge through the power of repentance, but also it's subitist it's sudden, it actualizes Buddha nature. And this is at the heart of the Thakuragarbha discourse. I'm arguing <clears throat> whether it's Dilun or Chan. This animated the quest for, in the Dilun case, unobstructed inian wa. Recollect me, see me. Or Sanjus, Ren'e, Recognizing the evil of my nature, seeing it. Or Nianfo, pure land, recalling or calling on Buddhas. And I argue that this was further developed in 8th century Chan, formless practice of wunyan, no thought. So the nian there is is a re- recalling, but also reflecting, thinking, focusing. These are connecting uh, semantic fields. So Wunian, while claimed to be subatist and an icon- iconoclastic rejection of purifying mediations like Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and mediations like Buddha visualization or naming, I argue it never let Less retained roots in Nien as Buddha recollection. However, um, it there was there was a a necessity to, I believe, kind of hide this. So, although Dila and repentance was meant to enable Buddhas and Buddha nature to reveal and thus destroy Kleshas, deep afflictions like addictions. this aim became a target for the followers of Chan southern school ideology in the late 8th century. They argued that treating Klesha's afflictions as if they were real was the only affliction, and all purification practice was gradualist. However, I argue in the book that the scapegoating of repentance and purification was a telltale denial of Chan's appropriation of this sudden or subitist function of repentance, which is the non-duality of Buddha-naming and Buddha-nature. Wow.
1: You know, Wendy, my field is modern Chinese Buddhism, but after reading your book, I think my understanding of Pure Land and Chen has just totally changed. Thank you so much yeah. for writing this. Oh. Oh. Yeah, I've never seen the, the concept of union war, right, this recollection, calling out for Buddha, for refuge, and mm. the Buddhahood, and with the Pure Land, with the Chan anti-ritual rhetoric. Um, I think this chapter is going to be... Um, need me to reread it at some point to get the intricacies of things. So for now, um, all good things has to move on because it's a process. <laughs> so chapter four, okay. the agency of relations is my favorite chapter. So here you propose that instead of studying the agency of peoples and things, we shall study the agency of relations. Uh, which you call, here I quote, the way that constructions, textual, visual and reflexive emerge out of processes of intention and action and in turn have efficacy within these processes. That's page 124. And you also gave us a broadened understanding of agency, which means, here I quote again, the capacity to generate effects and be affected within a given field of conditions. Unquote. I wonder this given field conditions is the sixth gun that you are talking about. But anyway, mm, yes, um, yeah. you also, yeah, you also mean that the agency also means to produce and thereby be produced. And I think this kind of understanding of agency, stemming from you mentioned in the book, from the Buddhist idea that agency of a self is an effect of the momentum of aggregated processes. The experiences of so-called object is also considered a functional correlate of the continuum of these aggregated processes. So, you know, the key words for these practitioners informed by the Dilun branch of Yogacara Buddhism is con- constitutive and mutually responsive, which you mentioned in your answers, like in um, the previous uh, several answers, but this kind of concept right co-constitutive and mutually uh, responsive they only work when seeing agency as an effect of aggregated processes so could you for the benefits of listeners explain to us how this focus on this agency of relations in this perspective that you propose can help us understand appreciate the workings of visual, moral and market economies at Baoshan
2: again thank you um and thank you for saying it's your favorite chapter um this this means a lot to me as it's a takeoff point for my current book now i i know we want to leave that but for the end but i can't help it <laughs> um because please. the visual moral i'm <laughs> sorry yeah, um, just please go on well, the visual, moral, and market economies at Baoshan. Um, I think you know the issues at stake are uh, are still in play for for me. And um, so, the core of this chapter, the agency of relations, uh, came from a paper that I published in in two thousand and twelve. But then it expanded, and I'm mentioning the date because since then theories of co-constitution or co or as you quoted, um, the, the um, correlation <clears throat> between aggregated processes and experience and the functional correlation of um, the feedback loop that's involved there. Um, these kinds of theories, which I provisionally called co-constitution or co-poiesis, have become much more visible. I appreciate this development and this shift. And I see Joanna Macy and Lynn Morgulis, the biologist, as matriarchs in this shift. Uh, feedback loops in the processes of what Buddhists call the 10,000 things, um, all beings, including for Dogen rocks and trees. Um, participate in this re- relational agency in a in a Buddhist worldview, and have become much more visible in our worldview, thanks to biologists, sociologists, and economists. So we, you know, and artists. So the visual, moral, and market economies are are beginning to absorb what I am seeing as a kind of Buddhist understanding, although it has changed. Let's. Let's not conflate them too easily. Um, however, since, since what we might call the Buddhist and the biologist's orientations to codependent arisings are not the same, any work ha- to coordinate them has to be acknowledged as hybrid, as with the phrase you quoted above from the book, the capacity to generate effects and be affected within a given field of conditions is a Buddhist insight that was meant to serve the process of getting untangled, whether through the process of destroying afflictive uh, looping or like kleshas or generating liberative looping, skillful means and merit. In our modern context, there are fervent calls for getting entangled in contrast in relational effects in order to create feedback loops that counter the spinning vortices of destruction. There are louder and louder calls for more skillful means of conducting our embodied responsiveness and more formulations of relational ethics and contracts legal contracts that recognize global structural inequalities. Kate Raworth's Donut Economics is a good example and inspiration for me, among others. And let me quote from Donna Haraway's 2016, um, Staying with the Trouble. She says, her, of her chapter three about symbiogenesis and the lively arts of staying with the trouble, she says it spins out the threads of sympoiesis. Let's let's linger on that word for a moment. Sympoiesis in ecological, evolutionary, developmental biology, and in art, science, activism's committed in her chapter to four iconic troubled places, coral reef, holobiomes, Black Mesa coal country in Navajo and Hopi lands and other fossil fuel extraction zones, impacting especially ferociously on indigenous peoples, complex limer forest habitats in Madagascar and North American circumpolar lands and seas, subject to new and old colonialisms in the grip of rapidly melting ice. Okay, that is a mouthful. Um, So she's going into... Very ant-like passages of different of the ten thousand things um, to um, to develop this idea of sympoiesis, and she acknowledges also Lynn Margulis, who talked about cooperation rather than you know just the selfish gene and survival of the fittest, um, changing that paradigm. She also acknowledges Lynn Margulis as a as progenitor here. Um, So I want to say that I didn't know about this when I was writing about this book, or I didn't read it yet when I was writing practice scapes, but then have begun to think about how sympoiesis and copoiesis are different or similar. And I would say they are cousins, but they are not the same. So I am trying to retain and reimagine the Buddhist concept of merit within the agency of relations in the book, because I talk about the work of of different kinds of merit-making activities and different kinds of skillful means. Um, So so the work um, of vows and so on, uh, but also... I think that intentional awareness of aesthetics, attention to the images and their aesthetic conditions, their aesthetic world is not trivial. Um, In spite of vociferous critics like Terry Eagleton, who dismiss aesthetics as a meaningful measure, I find to my surprise that there is support for this as a means of engaging in skillful copoiesis within what is called the metamodernism movement, which I won't go into here, but you know, look into it. Um, the key is that, is that this is not a hubristic, a hubristic appropriation of elite aesthetic judgment-making. It is a humble awareness that each relational agent has a different sense of what fits and what is beautiful, what is well-made. I am working on this in my current book, but tentatively, co poetic aesthetics, which is explored in the Agency of Relations chapter, is attentive to what happens in between what we imagine and want to make, the work we want to do, and how it affects others in the surrounding spider web. Well, thank you. Thank
1: you, Wendy. This is uh, so much richer than I imagined. When I was reading the book, I- definitely didn't get this such richness. And then the resonances you mentioned, not that you mentioned about the um, new work about biology and Buddhist resonances, uh, it certainly rings mm-hmm. true. So I'm really looking forward to read your new book. Um, and I just want to prime these listeners, right? Um, for me, what's interesting about the Buddhist kind of poises is that the goal is to getting unentangled, but mm-hmm. um, the current um, kind of a Donald Haraway's work, uh, biologist kind of entangled life kind of approach, that's a call to get us entangled somehow in a more uh, beneficial cycle for everyone, the looping beneficial looping effects. So I just want to um, ask to pay attention for now, and then maybe wait for your new book. Um, So now let's move on to chapter five, theories and debates. Gosh, if your book is dense, this is the densest chapter, not for the faint hearted (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Um, It's meant to be a, it doesn't, you know, it's meant to be a kind of in a good way dense, but this is, you know, it's in-depth reveal a view into the theoretical underpinnings that supports the practices that hinge upon this efficacy of co-constitutive and mutually responsive mutual responsiveness in the previous chapter but in this type of dense chapter you open up a new kind of a, um, a perspective that is about yogacara philosophy you reenacted the battlefield scenes centered on the debates scholarly debates on whether yogacara is idealism phenomenology something totally different something else. What I find most interesting uh, is your take in this debate and the related issue of why an accurate understanding of what you of what yoga is, right? Matters for the pra- to understanding the practices at Baoshan, particularly on page 2016. I think um, this is the one I chuckled along when you write it. So here I just quote: To insist that Yogacara texts are supposed to answer the question, do you deny ex- uh, that external objects exist? Right? It's like insisting that someone who keeps no pet answer yes or no to this question: Are you still beating your dog? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but also on page 200, right, you alert readers to a key difference between the so-called actant, act, A-N-T, mm-hmm. dash a n p and versus existent, um, as one is like what things do, what mind do, for example, and the other is what mind is, is the being kind of mm-hmm. question. So could you please explain in very, very layman's term to the listeners? Mm-hmm and then who have not read the book, maybe do not have the courage to read it yet. What is the central point in this battlefield reenactment? What do you hope to achieve here?
2: Oh, thank you. Um, well, so the two battlefields are, um, you know, Fadzong's attack of the Weixir, the, the Xuanzang's um, Version of Yogacara at at that time. And then uh, the later one is this big debate that boiled up primarily, or, you know, the key players were Lambert Schmidhausen and Dan Lusthaus over the the question of of whether um, or not. Yogacara is idealism. So I'm not going to go into those here. <laughs> if you want to go, go through the battles, uh, please um, go to the book. But um, I want to acknowledge, during Lingyu and Hui, Hui Yuan's time, uh, Di Lun um, time, uh, Xuanzang had not yet gone to India or produced the Zhang Shilun. So, I acknowledge that this chapter's focus on later receptions, whether, you know, uh, seventh and eighth century or 20th century later receptions of Vasubandhu's works, may be somewhat anachronistic. However, it was the work of Dilan and Shulin exegetes on Yogacara that sparked Xuanzang's famous quest. Uh, For example, the Shugasam Duan assert the continued biographies of eminent monks by Daoshuan um, asserts that Hui Xiu, who is a Baoshan who is memorialized at, at Baoshan, uh the co-disciple uh, or the probably the disciple of Hui Yuan uh, whose dates are 547 to 646 um, and was also Ling Yu's disciple anyway important person Hui Xiu was visited by Xuanzang who sought him out for his expertise on the Mahayana samgraha Shastra, a Sangha's work. Um so there is there is a there is a connection and we can think of Dilan as a kind of impetus for Xuanzang to go on that epic journey. Um but for me, the main point after all the entanglements and the battles the main point is in the conclusion. So throughout the chapter, I underlined Dan Lustes's point that so-called mind-only or only cogn- cognition, vinyapti mantra, is about what cognition does, not what the mind is, as, as Jessica pointed out. What it does is recreate subject-object experience in each moment, what the mind does. And the point of practice is it to overturn the basis for doing so. However, in the conclusion, I ponder the ways that a kind of ontologized suchness seems to haunt even the severest of critics. So if I can go into a slightly altered version of the conclusion in the book, um, it is through this very harmony between what we could call Vinyapti mantra tatata, tatata suchness or truth, and tagata garba tatata, Buddha nature, suchness, that the ghost lives on related to Lambert Schmithausen's eulogy to Tatata as the primordial quote, basis of all forms of actualized nirvana end quote we may recall that Lin Jungwa referred to Dilan soteriology as a form of absolute idealism lin summed up t'ata as truth and said truth is the self-illumination of truth itself while truth is not differentiated from the mind. Similarly, Schmidhausen characterizes Tatata as transconceptual, ineffable, true, ultimate nature, Dharmata of everything. Now, these evocations are part of nuanced analyses of antidotes to dualistic reifications, ontologizations. <laughs> But apparitions of an ontologized mind seem to arise from ritual evocations and exorcisms alike. An awakened subject Tatagadagarba of the non apparition of dualism seems very difficult to detach from a pearly awakened substrate Tatagadagarba one mind. And the problem, and this is a problem, one mind reification was criticized at the time, for criticisms of primarily p- paramartha. Of course, the bottom line is that all marks are marks of scripta, of making, of co-constitution, of construction. And yet, the experience of luminous lack of obstruction, seems to carry with it the authority of something uniquely well-made or well-done, if this is what the mind is doing. Interpreting and translating deluna exegetes is delightful and ultimately impossible. One is working with Mobius strip designations and formulations that self-deconstruct and resurrect in the same moment. Deal in commentaries like Hui Yuan's commentary on the Qixin Qi Lun, the awakening of faith, turn on the paradoxical pure nature of dual/slash non-dual reflexivity. Functioning as both self and other to itself, it becomes perception of their dependent nature. You can read Hui Yuan's shin Lun commentary both ways. The Dharmakaya, the Buddha, Buddha body, illuminates by manifesting its cognitively separate origin, in other words, non-dual substrate, and it manifests by illuminating fundamental non-discrimination, in other words, non-dual subject. Transformations of consciousness and contingently arising subject-object dualisms intrinsically offer illumination of their codependent nature, which I am analogizing with Paratantra, codependent nature in the Yogatara scheme, and difference derivadas recognition. But we're not going to get into that right now. (sighs) To conclude (laughs) self-undoing is their substance and their wellspring, their substance in quotes. This is neither being something nor doing nothing. Just as Nagarjuna's emptiness of emptiness is neither substrate nor super nothingness. So that's the conclusion, (laughs) as well as a prayer that the Buddhas forgive all all, um, uh, misunderstandings and obstructions, quoting the Chan Hui Wen. Wow. I'm pretty sure Buddha are compassionate,
1: so it won't mind us (laughs) deluded beings. (laughs) Um, That's, you know, that's my hope. Hmm. Yeah, my hope too. But you know, the mind is always, what does the mind do for a deluded person like us? um, Me, ontologizing, objectifying, separate, insist that there's an object, subject divide, that's what we do. But for those of you who are brave enough, definitely read these chapters. You'll find many, many more um, profound thinkings of both thinkers in the past, Yugacharians in the past, and maybe some new insight of how we understand the world in a different way. So, chapter six, Radicaries, Images and mediators. So in this chapter, Mindy, you point out to us some unique features of Baoshan uh, mortuary groves in Chinese called talin. For example, the mortuary images sit within the niches in the shape of a stupa, either in the Indian style or the Chinese style. This is in contrast to earlier constructions where only the Buddhist bodhisattvas are housed in stupa-shaped niches. There are also special burial rituals like a forest interment in Chinese called where the corpse is exposed for, for you know some time and the followers or disciples collect mm-hmm. the scattered bones, cremate them, put them into a really radical stupas. Um, could you please tell the listeners what do these niches images, inscriptions which you call phrases, the descriptions of these carved images, right? What do they indicate to us about the relationships between the desire to create effects? And the desire to represent exemplars, the intercessors could be disciples, followers, whoever helped build stupas and the donors. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Yes. Um. Yeah. I'm gonna thank. Uh, I'm gonna skip over the X phrases discuss, discussion because it goes into you know, Western this sort of reference to representation within the representation itself, um, which happens at Baoshan. but I'm going to bracket that and focus instead on um your your mention of um of Zhenrong and Zhenshan as a as a point of entrance, these terms true appearance and true body. Um and you you mentioned that you see these in terms of affective process rather than presence. So for me that um, that linked this chapter to the agency relations chapter. So I wanted to uh, focus on that part the John wrong true appearance part. So the desire to create effects a link to um, link to the power of Zhenrong or true appearance in a, as effective process is related to an earlier discussion in the agency of relations chapter of ganying or uh, sympathetic resonance, a long-standing uh, Chinese philosophical concept and dynamic. So, um, in that regard because ganying, or sympathetic resonance, has also to do with the media of this resonance among things. And I, I say that Baoshan's eulogies and images could be seen as tuning instruments, skillful means of striking up resonance between the merit of devotion to the deceased and the merit of the deceased. The principle of the coherence of emptiness of essence, Buddhist foundational uh, insight, and the efficacy of phenomenal response could embrace a ri- wide range of what Daniel Stevenson calls, quote, situationally ramified activities, not limited to ritual. So approaching these images, is it presence? Is it person, what is it? These situationally ramified activities, these rituals oriented to images. So subtle vital energies or chi, emotions, and the media of various forms of communications could all be termed resonant or resonators, tuning instruments. Moreover, as Sonia Lee points out, The stimulus in stimulus response, ganyang, does not reside in the object or action. Rather, an event is called forth as stimulus response by the mutually resonant virtues of the effects that meet and amplify. Resonance may link effects that are temporarily separated. Karmic ripeness of timing was a key trope in hagiographic accounts of Ganying or Gantong, Tong, uh, which is super mundane power. So these are not, in other words, one thing to underline here, these these are indeterminate until activated. They are not repeatable, and we cannot get observer agreement about them. It is an appeal to a codependent energetic process that does not cannot have observer agreement. Okay, that's just a side note for now. Um but this applies, I think, to the way that Jun Jun Rong, the true, the true image works. Throughout the book, I refer to variations in the semantic field of the true image. And there's various terms, zhan xiang, zhan uh, xing, zhan zhang, and zhan <laughs> true appearance or true face. Um, in references to true form or true appearance or true body or true representation, it is important to keep in mind that in these contexts, the truth, the true of truth, is upaya, skillful means, of any Buddha body any Buddha body is only upaya, or it is uh, magnificently upaya, or, or something. What distinguishes ordinary from two bodies is that the latter have no basis other than the vow to save beings. No karmic qualia, no attributes apart from attributions by the devotee. The true image, whether of wood, stone, paper, or mind moments, is made when salvific works and the intent to access them come together. While many accounts include colorful details about the image, what is emphasized is that the true image appears when the devotee's intent is true, purified of defilements. A number of scholars are using presence in this, uh, in this relationship. And this is, of course, a considerable advance from old style references to idolatry and superstition, um, but it is still attached to an under presence, is still attached to an underlying division between projecting subject and passive object. Gil Raz argues for true face, because this also alludes to the viewer facing the image of verbal turning. Similarly, I suggest working from a dynamic middle way, focusing on processes that affect a pivotal relation rather than reifying an ontologized location. Pointing to a pivotal dynamic, true appearance of the image and true looking is not localizable in the one who sees or fashions the image Or in the image. So, recalling in Gold Spider again, appearance and looking are connected, are one connected strand of developmentally embodied responsiveness. The maker and the affected audience are not separate. And this can be found inscribed in the images and objects themselves. And one example I use in the book is an inscription on a stone lantern, but it's too long to uh, unpack here. I'll say a bit wow. more about it at the end with, ref- with reference to Wei Jing's uh, memorial. Awesome.
1: Thank you, Vinnie. Again, I'm just so happy um, we conducted this interview because there's so many intricacies, details, nuances that I couldn't get in my first reading. Um, here, I, what I heard is that the trueness, right, the gen, in the gen, rong, is not it's it's a process, right? It's indeterminate until it's activated, activated by what, um, by you know your vow to save sentient beings, your intention to access this um, uh, the Buddha's kind of yeah. as refuge, so the word is again is co-made, and then the mm-hmm. pivotal relation just really itself um, should be I don't know it just it's just like it's much more apt to capture what's going on in these people who make those niches and then inscribe those images uh, in their uh, necropolis. So, we are moving on to chapter 7, a niche of their own. Here, you zoom into the lives of town women, mostly nuns who renounce household, not to subvert mainstream patriarchal values, but to support them. But at the same time, they also created a niche for themselves by marshalling their uh, resources like family alliances, motif donations, um, also, can kind of physical uh, kind of aesthetic practice, you know um, just you know amazing kind of a difficult aesthetic practices yeah. and literary yeah. skills. And that site is Lanfengshan, Feng Shan close to Baoshan. You meticulously analyzed for us both of their own mortuary niche and their poems left by the those nuns. The four nuns in particular, Seng Jinggan, Puxiang, Pu Xiang and Ben Xing. So please tell us a bit more about this practice scape and the women practitioners who sustained it through their own kind of collective
2: actions. Thank you. Oh, yes. Um, you know, Baoshan is unique. This is the one thing about Baoshan that really sets it apart. Um, the style of the Mortuary niches include portrait statues of, of women, uh-huh. uh, um, as well as the monks on the Baoshan side. And in the book, I discuss at length why I dare to call them portrait statues, which is based on the inscriptions itself. Um, it is also unique that half the mortuary niches in a certain period are for women. Um, so, the, and I go through the statistics of that. It's it's a really, as far as I have been able to find, unreplicated collection of memorials for women. Um, and as you know, the chapter is concerned with many different aspects of the agency of relations through which women manage to create this this mortuary grove for themselves, uh, and each niche is unique, even though the majority do not have the extensive inscriptions like the four I discussed at length. Those the four nuns. Um, so it's really hard to generalize. Um, and again, I, you know, if you feel like it, read the chapter because it's got all kind, all these different aspects: family, literature, um, aesthetics, uh, and as, and aesthetic really difficult practices. Um, but I wanted to comment that I have a sense of fortunate accident bringing me to two different sites of women's work. So the presence of women in the mortuary grove at Lanfangshan was not what first drew me to the site. Um, It was the images of niches in general in Ouchi's article, and then the experience of walking all over the two mountains in 1999. I chose to translate those four uh, longer inscriptions first, And I realized then that in the mortuary grove, there were several nuns who were given the title dhyana master, meditation master, which was a relatively rare title for nuns at the time. And dhyana, of course, is the basis of the transliteration chan, but these are not chan masters in the 8th century sense. Now, the coincidence is that in 1990, when I chose the Lida Pabaji, the Record of the Dharma Jewel Through the Generations, As my dissertation topic, I had no idea that I would come to argue in The Mystique of Transmission and a subsequent article that the female disciples featured in the book, in the work, the Lida Ifabauchi, were its authors. And that seems to be accepted. I haven't gotten any big challenges on that yet. Um, And there's some some pretty interesting um, supporting records. And since then, I have pondered how dhyana masters of the 7th century emerged from the Lanfangshan mortuary grove, but none of their writings remain, these female dhyana masters. And over a century later, two women, I think, compiled one of the earliest Chan sectarian histories, and, and a very influential one, although lesser known. And this was to showcase their their own revered John master, Wutu. Both of these sites of women emerging from the research were accidental discoveries. But there's a kind of satisfying symmetry for me in finding these two sites of women at work, hard at work, uh, Baoshan and the Tang, which was the name of Wutu's monastery in Sichuan. So I feel privileged by these accidents. Um, And, uh, you know, these women have taught me a lot.
1: Thank you so much, Windy, for sharing this. Yeah. um, The study of women in the seventh, sixth century, that their writings just like um, not being kept (laughs) make it so much harder to know that even existed under the practice. They played a part in the transmission of whatever lineage you can think of. Um, in this case, it's the Baoshan's Di um, lineage and the Chan lineage. Um, okay, I think, you know, each of the Nietzsche will have their own story to tell, waiting for us to discover, to listen, to tune in. Uh, but for now, maybe we move on to chapter eight sh- sharing the practice scape. That marks the end of our journey through Baoshan. Um, you'll work, in this chapter, you will work readers through one of the most impressive memorials in this uh, mortuary grove, well preserved tripartite inscription for the Yi's disciple and Huiyuan's uh, Jin Huiyuan's uh, Hui collaborator, Dama Master Huixiu. The chapter opens with your full translation of the inscription of Huixiu's um, a niche, but ends with your juxtaposition with the reader, with and the Buddhist on the power of image and the work of mourning. I just find it super interesting. I just quote for the listeners. Um, In the current final age, we demand a vow of silence from our dead and from our Buddhists. The reader speaks. Uh, the reader speaks. Um, the semblance created through the work of mourning is successful insofar as it cannot su- succeed. Its failure to be the subject that is sought is its substance, its effective work. The Buddhist speaks, um, It is the very nature of things to fail to be the subject that is sought. This is the agency of relations of the practice scape of Zhu sheng cave and the crowded necropolis of Huixiu's memorial, and empty niches for unknown nuns. They shared the mountains with perfect equanimity, in broken silence." Unquote. I have read many books and articles on Rida and Madhyamaka, but why Rida and the Yogacharians at Baoshan, and what's the agency of relations at work here in this passage when you put Dorida and Yogacharians in conversation?
2: thank you yes and i i have to you know i um just i'm pleased to see that derrida is starting to uh, make a comeback uh, in an interesting way um, people are starting to recognize his contribution to the um uh, you know those questions of of structural inequalities and the question of of the role of law um, but that's a topic for another conversation. At the time I was writing this, he was in eclipse, and people, people say, Oh, we don't work on Derrida anymore. Um, but uh, but he remains a, a favorite of mine. Um, so in the lot la- in this last section, I discussed presence and absence with regard to the deceased. And this was based on Derrida's work of mourn, the work of mourning. And while I enjoy the sort of epistemological gymnastics involved in comparing Derrida's work of mourning and the work of mourning of Baoshan's disciples who created these niches, here I will give one relatively concrete example. Weizhou's neighbor at Baoshan is Jing. I'm sorry about my pronunciation, my tones were never very good, um, who is discussed earlier in the book. Um, they are in a niche, they are together in a niche set well apart from all the others on Lanfengshan. Weijing's memorial includes his disciples' inscribed wish to have an audience when he visits his master's mortuary niche. So he built the niche and he desires an audience when he visits it. So I discuss this in the context of the notion of ganying, as we talked about earlier, sympathetic resonance. It is not that huijing is believed to be present in the memorial; it is that the memorials are media for ganying. Huijing or huixiao are sought, but neither but are neither subjects nor objects. The Buddhist seeker at the site of the work of mourning is successful not because of imagination or projection or superstition. He or she is successful because the nature of emptiness is correspondence and copoiesis. What is found, self slash other, does not exist as such, but the mutual effects are causally real. To quote Michelle Bipple, the relations are real, the relata are not. In this case, the causal relationship is merit, gongdeh, an offering. For me, this is also captured in Dogen's famous phrase in the Gendo Koan, quote, in Waddell's translation, Waddell and Abe's translation, quote, practice that confirms things by taking the self to them is illusion." For things to come forward and practice and confirm the self is enlightenment. So the last line of the book, as you read, uh, they share the mountains with perfect equanimity in broken silence is meant as a kind of triple entendre. Baoshan's niches are broken and worn and silent. No one comes to call on them anymore. I broke their silence by conveying their words and works into a different condition, a book. And yet, they have never stopped speaking and coming forward to move people with their traces." So that is what I meant by broken silence. Well, wow, thank you, Windy. This is just
1: so enlightening. Um. But i just want to prime for the listeners the important thing what the agency of relations do what makes things real is not material presence or kind of um, objective objectified existence but it's actually the mutual effects the, the work um kind of put forth through the you know making transferring of merit merits and that's what's real, right, the mutual effects mm. themselves. Mm. So I love the quote that you mentioned, a relation is real, really, not quite. Mm. Um, so part two, finally, after our long conversation, part two, um, hundreds of photos and inscriptions, and my full confession, I really didn't read it. I mm, only I checked <laughs> Sunshun's niches and Want to see how she was portrayed out of curiosity, mm-hmm. but I know you and your colleagues put in lots of work uh, into photographing, transcribing, translating them. So, for the benefits of listeners, could you please share with us um, how would you like this kind of a
2: rich collection to be used? Um, well, this part's short, <laughs> so I just say, however they want to use it, you know, they, I'm happy. Um, And no doubt there are still mistakes, though I poured over everything so many times. Um, And personally, you know, when Baoshan, when people put Baoshan into conversation with other magnificent sites of the region, like Shangtangshan and Longmen, for example, I am happy because I think Baoshan was meant to be part of that web. Thank so, you. That's all I have to say on that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so however we won't like it. So this is the kind of a scholarly indeterminacy. So until yes. um, someone comes to use it in whatever way they desire, um, nothing comes real. It's indeterminate. <laughs> Thank you <Exactly>. so much. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so Wendy, we've taken a lot of your time today. Is there anything else in the book? I know it's just so rich, so many things. But like anything that we didn't have time to discuss here, but you'd like to highlight for the listeners and readers. Could you please let us know?
2: Oh, just well, again, thank you so much for your detailed attention and for making this possible. And um, yeah, thank you. That's all I could say is just thank you.
1: um okay our last question before we part our ways this is the last traditional new books network question what are you working on finally we got to hear (laughs) your full description well work in progress
2: yes so i mean it snuck into the conversation It, it it made you know it has its own agency it got it it got itself in there um i couldn't help it um, but I, so I did mention it, but the book is provisionally, it's a book of essays of different, top, very different topics, um, but they all involve a sort of comparison of Buddhista, Buddhist and contemporary issues. So it's called provisionally anti-entropics, and each essay compares different aspects of Buddhist and contemporary approaches to copoiasis. To uh, chiasmatic dynamics, which by which I mean inversions and crisscrosses, and Im- ambiguous or indeterminable ontology, and epistemology um, intersections, and what I'm arguing, <clears throat> again inspired by Michelle Serres, that these are all aspects of negentropy, and I explain why that's important to me in the book um, this is partially inspired by by work with um, of all things permaculture but I'm not going to try to explain how that works here you'll just have to wait for the book thank you yeah we will
1: but thank you again, Wendy, for writing such an amazing book and for sharing with us many of your insights on forgettable metaphors and those just those nuggets of knowledge that we still have to process further in the long run, in the long term. Um, I'm
2: really looking forward to reading your new book soon. Oh, thank you so much. And uh, thank you for reading carefully. And I look forward to more conversations in the future